a love-hate relationship and opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel. And I'm Alex Ruiz. And today we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls. We won't tell you how to live your lives. It's been so long since we've recorded one of these. It's honestly been like maybe two months. Yeah. Since we've recorded. Yeah. Life is busy. Life is busy. We've been dealing with some work staffing issues that have just made our time way too not enough. Well, it's so funny because you normally edit our episodes while at work, and you haven't had time to do that. Exactly. So the inability to be derelict in your uh, in your professional life has made it so that even getting these things after we've recorded them done so that they can be uploaded has been an issue and then me i've just been so behind on even uploading them though i think we've only got one in the tank at the time of recording so so welcome back internet friends we're happy to have you listening to our voices once again indeed yeah <laughs> a lot's happened since the last episode <laughs> That we've posted. Lots happened. Um, it's though. funny. It, it is funny. I just listened to the episode that, for all of you, is the most recent one. And at that time, Diane Feinstein was still alive. Yeah. Mitch McConnell had only just stroked out. Yeah. And now, well, you know, Israel's leveling Gaza. So, a lot's happened. Lots happened. There's still a, a strike going on, though it's not the writer's strike. Now it's just the actor's strike. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, you touched on it. We, I, briefly toyed with the idea of weighing in on the Israel-Palestinian conflict and decided very quickly that that was way too big of a bag of snakes, way too big of an issue that I felt, then I felt comfortable uh, spending 20 minutes talking about. Mm. But... There is one key thing, and this was going to be the like the specific hate I was going to level that I think we can talk about. This isn't a new thing in the history of a conflict, but I, in my own personal like Twitter sphere and internet media diet, have seen what feels like an overwhelming amount of just straight up misinformation regarding the conflict. Sure. Specifically, a lot of sources where it, it shows, like, a bombed-out hospital and is saying that Hamas recently bombed this hospital, and then somebody's going, well, actually, for clarity, this picture is from 2016, from this conflict. It's not recent. Uh, a lot of kids in literal cages, and people are saying they're Israeli children when, in fact, they are... Palestinian children who were put in the cages by the IDF. A lot of shit like that. A lot of just straight up, the opposite is true propaganda misinformation. And holy fucking shit, I hate it. Oh, I mean, there was uh, there was one account briefing where there was some bomb footage, and it wasn't even in, like, the Middle East. There was one um, that I read about where it was actually footage of, like, a bombing of a hospital building that was actually happening in, like, central western Africa. Mm. But it was getting shared around like it was happening in Gaza. And it's just like, no, this is from eight years ago and it's in a completely different continent. Mind your sources. 
I'd say the internet as a whole was a mistake, but well, that's both true and not true. Well, it's it's so tricky, and the issue is Twitter, which I'm not going to call X. I'm just going to call Twitter right yeah, now. Indeed. The problem is Twitter has historically been a spot where if you know who to follow, if you have good sources to follow, is where you would get some of the best on-the-ground journalism. But the problem is, at the same time, you would also it's also a hotbed for people spreading bullshit. And a lot of the things that are circulating around there at the time of recording is stuff being pulled from Telegram channels. And those Telegram channels are not vetting anything. And again, they're taking sometimes old footage of things, sometimes footage that's not even from this conflict, labeling it as such and spreading it around. Now, it's... it's, And it's so annoying because, yes, Twitter has this fact-checking set up there, but that still relies on human beings seeing the post and marking it as such and enough of them that it triggers that same um that that same clarifier being put underneath that same fact checker underneath and i guarantee you there's a lot of people who just plain it doesn't circulate widely enough for those in the know to label it properly so it does move around and the discourse that i see are people talking about like oh how could you support hamas beheading all of these israeli children and i'm like I'm not sitting here saying I support Hamas. I do not support Hamas. And I don't think that's happening. Sorry, you're being propagandized to. Yeah. Are there bombings? Yes, absolutely. But no one is rounding up Israeli children and beheading them. I'm sorry, you have bad news resources. Yeah, it's. I shudder to think what the coverage is on Fox or even like CNN. Um, it, it it's fascinating the widespread takes I'm seeing because it, it it is a lot of people who are just kind of reactionarily voicing pro-Israel sentiments with or without knowing the full story. And a lot of people just trying to point out that there is a difference between Hamas and the nation of Palestine as a whole. Because there seems to be some fucking dispute over that. There's, there's a lot of dispute over that. So, there, but, but, you know, it's especially in the U.S., I'm not surprised by this because this is the same country that couldn't tell the difference between Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda as a whole. There were Americans during the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War who thought that Al-Qaeda was the government mm. of Afghanistan. Jesus. And what was it a notably powerful political entity in Afghanistan? Yes, absolutely. Was it the government? Fuck no, you idiots! <laughs> we were talking about this last night and you mentioned that there's a reason you don't get into, like, disputes over Twitter anymore. Yes, and... because I... I I don't. I refuse to get in an argument where I have to teach somebody a primer class to even be able to have a conversation with them. Sure. I I do not get into arguments with people about Israel Palestine if they cannot. I I have a few litmus tests, but it's typically okay. Can you relay the events of the Six Days War to me? And I don't even need a detailed explanation. Can you relate the events of the Six Days War to me in a minute or two? 
in broad strokes. That litmus test is not complicated. That is not difficult. And yet so few people who have very strong opinions about Israel-Palestine cannot do it. Right. An even stupider litmus test that admittedly I think more people are capable of passing, but still an embarrassing number of people can't, is tell me the difference between Hamas and Palestine. Or define a Zionist for me. Sure, right. Like, I, I, these, these are so just outside of basic high school government bullshit, but so many people cannot do it. And I'm not going to waste my time arguing with somebody who cannot meet that criteria. Yeah, and, and I think that's a valid uh, boundary to hold within yourself. I guess, really, more than anything, Listeners, I'm sure in one way or another, unless you are very purposefully keeping your news feed away from this type of stuff, I'm sure you're hearing about the conflict. Maybe you're even aware of the uh, shit going on between China and the nation formerly known as Taiwan. You know, whatever whatever is going on in a greater geopolitical sense, just make sure that you are doing your own due diligence to verify that the information coming across your screen is an accurate representation of what's going on. I, th- I think that's all I can ask of people, and I know that is an incredibly fucking big ask this of is, most people. I, I no, I, I will give this ask straight up. Anytime you are seeing or engaging with anyone who is arguing for any kind of mass military action, question that. Question that belief. Question that assertion. The questions you should be asking are, who profits from this? Mm. And it's funny because a lot of people don't think about that. There's, there's all this argument that I, there, there are Washington Post columnists who are trying to argue that it is the moral duty of Israel to level the Gaza Strip right now. And it's like, okay, who profits from that? Every single weapons manufacturer that the U.S., in the U.S. who is supplying Israel. Right. Who benefits from that? Every colonial power in the apartheid state of Israel. You should also ask yourself, how are we identifying civilians? I know I've bitched on this podcast before that during the Iraq war, under the Obama administration, they did a reclassification of combatants to include any male age 10 or older. The reason for this is because that means if any male age 10 or older is caught in a drone strike collateral damage aspect, they can count them as combatants. Sure. Any male 10 or older. So ask yourself, in Gaza, are all of those civilians, how many of them are actual combatants? And if you sit here and you are arguing this amount of civilian death is justified, maybe you're the baddies. Are we the bad guys? Yes, yes, in fact. Um, so I don't want to. I, I don't want to be dour on this too much longer. We. I purposefully decided to talk about something else as my hate, <laughs> but this is too important of an issue not to at least 
talk on, and I think you've you've articulated some points very clearly. So yeah. thank you. Mind, just mind your sources. Mind political razors. That's another thing. If any, if you ever see anyone who's like, if you don't support Israel, yeah. then you are pro-terrorism and an anti-Semite. I'm a believer in philosophical razors. I love a good philosophical razor. Occam's razor, um, Sagan's law, Hitchens razor. If you don't know these things, Google them. They're a lot of fun. A philosophical razor is the idea of you can use this as a rule of thumb to make your logic work a little bit better. Um, just, just for an easy one, Sagan's law is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. This is a way to be like, if you are engaging in philosophical inquiry, if someone is making an extraordinary claim, if someone is telling you, I have a pill that will allow you to lose 20 pounds, gain a ton of energy, and your hair will grow back. That's an extraordinary claim. To believe it, you need extraordinary evidence. I love a philosophical razor. A lot of people try to create political razors. They try and say, here's a political rule of thumb for you. Mm. Like, if you don't support Israel in its conflict with Palestine, you are an anti-Semite. Beware of political razors. Beware of those kinds of political absolutes. Political razors do not work. Philosophical razors do because they're big and abstract and easy and don't really involve human nature. Political razors aren't so easy. So always avoid, rec learn to recognize those and learn to avoid them. Absolutely. Good advice. Welcome to Love Hate Relationship. Uh, every episode we expound on the topic of the day in the form of our douchebag buffer. That's what we've just done. And then one of us talks about something completely different that we love. Then the other talks about something else even more completely different that we hate. And every other episode, we take your relationship questions. But this is not every other episode, Alex. Yes, no. This is a love and a hate episode. Indeed. So I'm gonna, I think I've got the love this time. And uh, I think I'm continuing my trend from... Because I think my last love was sport or exercise related. But I've been going back through um, some of my old love topics and going, what's something super obvious that I just didn't go with because I thought it was too obvious? And actually, those have, you know, been fruitful. So I'm talking about another one of those today. So, Andy, I'm going to ask you a slightly awkward intro question here. Okay. When is the last time in your just daily life, and I'm not saying for the sake of exercise, I'm saying you practically needed to do this, or the last couple of times, where you found yourself needing to go into a squat? Uh, so my job routinely involves me bending down and picking up a, uh, one of those cardboard boxes that you find in an office environment full of files. Sure. And I can be picking those up off a table setting, or if I have to bend down and fill that box with files from a low-hanging shelf, I have to squat and then pick up the box. You mean you don't just bend over and, and do it that way like most Americans do? No, because my back already hurts. <laughs> oh, come on. You're only in your early 30s. Indeed. Thank you for that. I appreciate that because my topic today is uh, something that's going to seem weird, I think, to a lot of people. But I consider it sort of foundational 
and yet something not enough of us, at least not enough of us who are outside of the weird little fitness niche that I live in, <laughs> sure. um, think about. And that is the squat. Okay. So, to be pedantic about what exactly defines a squat. Oh, please be pedantic. A squat is a movement pattern in which both the knee joint and the hip joint bend, bend, preferably to a significant enough range of motion that they are both fully closed in a bottom position. Okay. That is the pedantic point. The less pedantic point is basically your legs with their two insertion points. And, you know, you can actually add your ankles here because almost nobody squats with straight ankles unless they're holding on to something. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So, basically, your three major joints of your leg all bend to some degree so that your upper body is still somewhat upright, although typically leaned forward, at least to some degree for balance, and you lower your body. There's a really helpful, honestly, I think it is used in, like, training videos and, like, a a medical analysis of what this is supposed to be. There's this helpful video you can find online. Somebody has this little articulated wooden doll thing, Mm -hmm. and they can show the two ways that one might bend down and pick something up, like you were just mentioning. Sure. One way is to bend at the back, which puts all the pressure on a singular hinge being where your spinal column meets your hips. Yes. And then the other is the proper squat in which the little doll thing is moved in a way to represent what you just said. Sure. Funny enough, um, maybe the most mechanically ideal way to pick up something like that, assuming it's not super low, like at ground level or lower, uh, would actually be a hinge movement. This is similar to a deadlift. Mm. And it's very similar because you hinge at the hips. And you do bend your knees, you just don't bend them all the way down. Sure. So it's more hip it's more hip dominant, and that's how you deadlift. That's how I do my Olympic lifts. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a hinge movement. But a hinge movement is different than a squat movement, because in a squat movement, the knees are bending at least as much as the hips do, if not more. Alright. So have you ever seen those videos on Instagram where it's like you see a baby squatting down and someone's like, that is a perfect squat. Look at those brand new knees. No, oh my God, what? I not, no, I've never seen a video of somebody talking about a baby squatting. Like it's a baby learning to stand. And, and, and well, okay, so this is, this is a funny thing. This gets thrown out a lot in the fitness circle. People say, you know how, you, you learned how to squat when you were a baby. You figured it out. Because huh. squatting is a necessary part of standing up when you are a baby. Babies, when they're learning... First, they learn to crawl. Yeah. And crawling at first is like... a Like, honestly, most babies first start crawling with basically their, ha- their hands and arms. They don't really know how to move their legs with it. Eventually, they figure out coordinating the legs. And then eventually, they start figuring out how to pull themselves up. But a necessary part of that is standing uh, is being in a deep squat i'm i'm picturing tommy pickles standing up i'm picturing a baby standing up and yeah i I see what you're saying now i've i i had never thought about that in that way once in my life before this conversation but it's a very normal thing in like crossfit seminars powerlifting coaching sessions all these 
or even personal trainers, they'll show videos of babies learning to stand and they'll be like, this is the squat form that you're trying to emulate. Mm. So a good squat will have your chest up. It'll have your... I fall into the camp of thinking like the best squats are the deepest squats um, in the sport of powerlifting in which the barbell back squat, that is a squat in which a loaded barbell is resting on the upper traps, the upper meat of the shoulders. Um, there is uh, the, in, in a lot of powerlifting, you only need to squat to the point where the shins are parallel to the ground. Um, some people, like me, with my very short legs, um, are actually built in such a way that I have no choice but to squat to parallel. Bottom position for me, like, my ass as far to the ground as possible, we call them ass-to-grass squats, is the same thing as my shins being parallel. I have no other choice. But, like, very long-legged people, if you ever see footage of, like, basketball players squatting in a gym... They squat to such a degree that their hips are well below their knee joints sometimes. Okay. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting piece of anthropomorphy. But it is, it is a natural human movement. It is considered one of the most natural human movements. You think about a primate. You think about a primate that goes through trees. And the jumping patterns that would be involved with that. Being in a squat is a necessary aspect of that. And we continued that from our evolution. This is a weird, awkward deviation. Okay. You've seen squatty potties before. I own and enjoy the squatty potty. So, Introducing the squatty potty. No, squatty potty is not a joke. And yes, it will give you the best poop of your life. Get oh, there's an argument that human anthropomorphy is such that we were never designed to shit sitting down. Right, We right. were designed to shit squatting in a squat, in a deep squat. The other big thing you'll, you'll come across is there are several uh, public restrooms in Asia specifically um, that is essentially just a, a professionally made hole in the ground with a, a space for your feet with the idea being you're meant to squat while you shit yeah. to your point yeah and and it's funny because when whenever you're dealing with like for instance heavily aging people um, and and frankly a lot of people who get into their very advanced age when they start working with say a personal trainer who's trying to maintain someone's independence one of the first things they go to is making sure that you can squat because if you can squat comfortably, especially if you can squat with some load, that's the thing that makes you able to get up out of bed, get off of a toilet, get out of a chair sure, okay. without additional assistance. Okay. Um, you know, not to get too specific, but I recently went to go visit an aged family member who was, who is nearly 90 and had and needed help in order to get out of a chair to get onto the little walker that allowed them to have be mobile, mobility. to have some kind of mobility. Sure. Um, that is one of the things that gets targeted with the physical therapy of elderly people. Mm. So I've gone in a lot of different directions, but talking about what I love about a squat. So 
I consider personally a squat one of the only necessary exercises that I think absolutely everyone who is not physically like experiencing some kind of physical limitation, i.e. some form of disability, should be able to do. Okay. That it is the it is the first starting point wherein if I'm ever going to train somebody, I will have them squat. I will make the squat a priority for them. Well, it's funny because I come to this from the uh, world where I'm not in the fitness community in the same way that you are. Sure. You know, I'll, I'll go through periods where I'm like, oh, I should really work out. Let me figure out what I should do. But I'm not... I'm not watching wrestling on YouTube, or not wrestling, I'm not watching weightlifting on YouTube like you are, say. And the squat in my own personal, like, sphere is something that I'll still hear referenced in the same way you hear somebody talking about doing push-ups and pull-ups. You do squats because it is a effective exercise. Yes. You want a nice ass? Do some squats about it. Yes. No, so that's, absolutely. That's where I come to it from. Absolutely. And, and if I'm going to talk about strength sports for a bit, um, I already mentioned this. The barbell back squat is one of the three contested lifts in powerlifting. It's right. the barbell back squat, the barbell bench press, and the deadlift. Okay. In weightlifting, my, my sport, my favorite sport, um, the squat is not a contested lift. However... The snatch and the clean and jerk, the two contested lifts, do have a squat component to them. Mm. You're supposed to catch both of those lifts in a squat position, unless you're doing a split version, um, which older people will sometimes do for mobility. But ideally, you're catching them in a squat position and squatting them up. The barbell front squat is typically considered the single most important accessory exercise that you can do for weightlifting. Okay. Bodybuilders... The will typically do a a high bar barbell back squat for many reps in order to build general musculature. And if you want to add muscle to a frame, arguably the best thing you can do is high bar barbell back squats, or even low bar back squats for high reps, sets of 10, 15, even 20. Okay. There is something weirdly magical about high rep back squats because you would think that the only thing it's going to add any muscle to is your legs, but that's absolutely not true. Like if you do high rep back squats with a good amount of load, most people will see that you'll, you'll have sore abs. Sure. Your back will get stronger. There's something about that stabilization with the arms and the upper back that just builds that muscle. Is it, is it enough that you would do nothing else and have like a bodybuilder physique? No, absolutely not. But nothing builds systemic muscular body tissue better than heavy loaded barbell back squats. Okay, sounds like a bit of a perfect workout. I mean, there, and, 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 and here's the thing. I, I know of maybe, I know of two workout protocols, two workout systems that do not have a squat in them. Only two. And both of them are minimalist programs by uh, a kettlebell guy named Pavel Satsulin. 
He's been on Joe Rogan a couple of times. He's actually like a really interesting character, but he's very much like he has he has a couple of two lift programs. They're right. literally like a deadlift and a press, or a kettlebell swing and a Turkish getup. They're they're designed to be okay. You only have two exercises you do on this whole program, and it's designed for absolute minimalism. It is these are workouts you do when you have the most bare bones of equipment and time. And even beyond that, he still has other programs that have squatting in them. Every other program that I know of has some kind of squatting. Maybe it's a goblet squat with a, with a kettlebell where you're holding a goblet squat and where you're, I'm sorry, where you're holding a kettlebell in front of you and you're squatting with it. Or maybe you're holding two kettlebells in the front and doing a front squat with it. Maybe it's the famous uh, Bulgarian system in weightlifting, where all you do is front squat, snatch, and clean and jerk to a maximum single every single day. The most minimalist weightlifting program still has front squats. Every athletic program that you use to train football or hockey players... Sure. Will ha- I, I have seen videos of hockey players doing ridiculous squats with a barbell. Yeah, no, that, that completely tracks. Yeah. Every calisthenics program, every gymnast program, ballet dancers do a thing called the plie squat, where the... I actually kind of love this. So the plie squat is a variation of the squat where the feet are outside of the shoulder width. And so they're very wide feet and you squat down and the idea is that it carries over very well to a lot of ballet positions. The exact same foot stance is used by some power lifters, but they don't call them plie squats. They have to call them sumo squats (laughs) because it's manlier. Uh uh Because... Big, tough power lifters don't want to admit that they're just doing plie squats. And they go use their gun-scented body wash. (laughs) And clean up with man wipes. Man wipes. Gross. (laughs) But again, every single athletic training program that I know of, minus those two minimalist programs, both written by the same guy, Mm -hmm. have some kind of squatting. Okay. It's... It, it, and, and, and I think about another one. Um, there's a program called Easy Strength, which is written by a writer I love named Dan John. There's no formal squatting in the program. However, he has you do squats in the warm-up. And okay. he's very much a believer that, like... And, and this is a program that's supposed to be, like, a minimalist strength program for someone who's playing a sport. So it's the idea is this is your baseline strength that will also not exhaust you so much that you can't do your track and field or your soccer or your basketball or your hockey. Um, And even then, in the warm-up, he's like, do squats with a kettlebell because you need to be able to squat. The load is less important than the movement pattern. I... I have talked about this, like, just with people when it comes up, but I'm someone who believes that that there, that same writer, Dan John, has um, a concept where he thinks that people are kind of built for one of, or for two of the four movement patterns. So the, the movement patterns would be push, pull, hinge, and squat. Okay. I assume push and pull don't need a lot of explaining. Um, you know, when you're pulling something towards you, that's a pull. When you're pushing it away from you... So he has an argument that everybody is kind of built for two of them. You'll have push hingers. Mm. Those tend to be, the hinge movement tends to be very explosive in nature. So push hingers tend to be like throwers. 
Okay. But they're very good at throwing something because they're good at explosively pushing something away. A squat puller might be like a rock climber. So they pull with their, with their upper body and they squat up with their lower body. Um, and the idea is there's, there's this matrix of these for everybody. I am not always sure whether I'm a pusher or a puller. I kind of go back and forth a little bit. Right now, I think I'm more of a pusher, but I am always a squatter. I, I'm just built for it. I've got these tiny little legs, so they don't have to... <laughs> no, honestly, if you've got short legs, if, if you've ever... Uh, okay, if you're someone who's long-legged, maybe you played basketball or volleyball um, in, in high school or something like that, and you've ever been in a weight room and thought squats fucking hurt, squats are uncomfortable... For very long-legged people, squats tend to be very uncomfortable because you're moving a lot farther than I am. I'm only moving a couple of feet. It's, it's not that much for me. Mm. Whereas someone with very long legs is going to move significantly farther. Okay, I see what you're saying. So the anthropomorphy for, say, heavy barbell back squats. I don't think everyone should necessarily do heavy barbell back squats. I'm going to do heavy barbell back squats for as long as my body will allow me to. But not everyone needs to. But I do think that everyone should be able to do a basic squat. Because it is, of all the movements that you have, it is one that comes up deceptively often. And we touched on this. Your back hurts. Mm -hmm. Because you're over 30. (laughs) Um, I hear this all the time. How many people do you know who are of a similar age to you, maybe a little younger or a little older, who complain about their knees? Yeah, certainly knees and backs are the the things you hear about the most. You don't really hear about somebody complaining about their elbows or shoulders hurting unless there was a specific, like, issue. Yeah. I, I don't say this as a, like, this is a standard thing, but assuming you don't have some kind of, like, injury. You were in an accident, you got injured playing a sport, something like that. Um, Because knee injuries are some of the most common you get, especially in like field sports or rink or arena sports. Um, Most people with shitty knees, I would argue, have shitty knees because they don't mess with the squat position. They don't sit in a squat position very often. My mind keeps going to what you were saying earlier about how a squat is like the essential movement. More than necessarily being able to use your arms. Though certainly if you've fallen sure. onto the ground, and you, you hopefully want to be able to lift your body weight up with your arms. But the idea of getting up, of, of getting out of bed, of getting up from a sitting position, it does seem like... This is kind of the key thing to do. Are you familiar with the get-up test? You know, you've probably talked to me about it before, but no. So the get-up test is... uh, It's a little bit of a tricky thing because ever since it became, like, well-known, it became something that people would train for, and that ruins the actual like purpose of it. It is supposed to be a screening test. Okay. But the idea of a get-up test is you start in a in a seated position on the floor. And then you get up to a standing position. And the idea is to get up to the standing position with needing to place as few parts of your body other than your feet 
mm. on the ground as possible. Yes, that rings the bell now. So if the only thing on on the ground when you get up are your feet, you have a score of zero, which is a perfect score. You get a point for every thing that you need to put on. So if you need to put one hand on and you can get up comfortably, that is a score of one. Okay. If you need to put both hands on, that's a score of two. If you need to put a hand, two hands and a knee on there, that's a score of three. Like, if you need to put your hands, your knees, and then bring one of your feet up so that your feet, like you need to take your feet off the ground and put it back on there to get up, that's a score of five. Okay. I think the most you can get is a score of six. And the idea is the higher your score, the more likely... I, I, it's a longevity and a quality of life test. Sure. And the idea was people who, especially of advanced age, who were able to still get up with a low score, a score of zero or one, tended to have better longevity outcomes and tended to have better uh, quality of life towards the end of their life. Because why do people get hurt when they get older? It's usually because they fall. It's because they're fragile, they fall, they can't get up, they either have broken a hip or they've been lying there and no one's around to help them kind of deal. Right, right. The get-up test, theoretically tests your readiness to be able to do something like that. Now, the problem is if you train for the get-up test, if you're like, I'm going to practice the get-up test and get really good at it, it kind of defeats the purpose. It's supposed to be a screening of your mobility and your strength and your ability to do that. I currently can get a zero on the get-up test, but it's hard. I have to, like, throw my arms up. I typically can comfortably do it with a score of one. I'll put one hand down, and that's enough for me to get up. About to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this after we're done recording now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and the idea, is, but but the point with the get up test is if you can squat your body weight very comfortably, then the get up test should not be that bad. You'll probably get a score of one or two, which is fine. A score of one of one or two is great. People will score one or two and live independently into their eighties. All right. It's not, you know, it's not perfect, but it is a general test there. Sure, sure. So, I I deeply love squatting. I recently uh, had to pull back on my Olympic lifting. I can't really do it the way that I could before. I Some of it is um, age. Some of it is the fact that I'm in my early 30s, um, closing in on my mid-30s. And my joints can't handle the kind of volume that I used to do with them. Because I used to Olympic lift. I used to snatch and clean and jerk every workout. Or I do one or the other of them every workout. Mm-hmm. And it, when I try and do that, it beats my joints up a lot. I probably could do it if I cut everything else way back. But I'm now at a point where, you know, I'm thinking about my aerobic capacity. I'm trying to run a little bit. Even just on even just on a treadmill, so that my heart rate gets up a little bit. I'm trying to work on my mobility a little bit more. I'm trying to do the things that will help me into longevity. I've never been a competitive weightlifter, but I can't do those things and weightlifting at the same time. When I tried to do it, my joints were getting really beat up. I was feeling exhausted. I w- it was too much for me. So I've recently pulled all of that way, way, way back. I've fallen. 
and I can't get up. But I am still squatting. I am still back squatting and front squatting. In my warm-up, I goblet squat. I try and sit in a bodyweight squat regularly. And that's literally just me sitting there. I, I drop down into a squat and I just sit there for like 30 seconds to a minute. Um, one of my favorite weightlifting co- coaches, Greg Everett, says that like his favorite mobility action for any aspiring weightlifter is to just have them sit in a bodyweight squat for several minutes. And he calls it the cigarette position. He's like, get down into a squat and be comfortable there like you're sitting there having a cigarette and watching the cars drive by on the street. <laughs> okay. Like, it's, it's, it's funny the way he describes it. But that alone will do, if, if you, and, and for a lot of people, that will hurt. That will hurt to start with. It's very uncomfortable if you're not used to it to sit in a deep squat position for, a, for an extended period of time. It is also one of the most natural things. We didn't always have chairs yeah, sure. as a species, but we were always able to squat. So I wanted to talk about the squat because I love it, because it is an, it is an exercise that I do legitimately enjoy. Um, I, the, the most weight I have ever squatted in my life was 380 pounds for a single. And I'm working on getting back up to that slowly. Um, because I don't think I'm ever going to hit the same numbers in the snatch and clean and jerk again. But I can comfortably squat heavy and will be able to. So the best power lifters, male power lifters anyway, don't peak until they're in their 40s. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. You can build strength. If you're diligent and you don't get hurt, that's another thing is you have to not be stupid and get hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have added weight in my squat ahead of me in my life. It is very likely that I, with diligence and work, I can probably be squatting in the 400s. I don't know if I'll ever hit 500, but I can very possibly squat in the 400s before I have to start, before age and everything else needs to start, force me to start tapering back. But something that I intend to always have in my life is the ability to squat with a little bit of load. At the very least, even if it is just a kettlebell that I hold. I think that squatting, if, you, if, if a person can do nothing else for their health and longevity, being able to squat comfortably for an extended period of time, whether that's a few reps with body weight or sitting in a body weight squat, or if you can add a little bit of load... There is nothing better, no singular one thing that would be better for your life. And I would argue it is the most foundational movement pattern. And I wanted to talk about it today because it's something that weirdly, because I live in a fitness sphere, I'm talking about squatting all of the time. Right. Squatting comes up constantly for actual fitness people. Like, ones you should take seriously. You don't ask how much do you bench. You ask how much do you squat. Or what does your squat look like? Because the squat is a true measure of your abilities and your capacities bodily. And so I wanted to talk about it a little bit here. And I appreciate that. I think it's very good advice. I think even if people listening are not necessarily fitness inclined like myself, 
should certainly, if nothing else, do the get-up test, do some squats, eat some tacos, build that nice dump truck of an ass up. Straight up. And continue to thrive in that manner. (laughs) Well, thank you for indulging me as I talked about squatting in this weird and wacky way that I do. You're very welcome. Shall we move on to the hate? Yes, and so I mentioned, you know, I my, my hate was going to be something regarding the Israel-Palestine conflict. We are moving away from that. Good. Um, the other thing that I had queued up in my mind is regarding the nature of comic book royalties. And Alex, can you succinctly, as you can, just, just give an idea of what royalties are? Sure, so... Royalties are um, a piece of the intellectual property question. So we're all familiar with like tangible property. You own your house, you own uh, your car, you own the shoes you're wearing, whatever. Sure. Intellectual property is ownership of an idea. Typically, um, in media circles, that is ownership of some kind of original content idea and royalties are where your ownership of that idea is recognized in is recognized legally and in order for people to utilize your idea they have to pay you a certain amount sure in music that is uh you were a songwriter and somebody wants to sample your work or sometimes cover your work, they would get paid for their performance as the performer of the song, but you would get paid a royalty as the songwriter. That's one example. Wonderfully done, and thank you for that. And, and we've talked about this a little bit whenever we've brought up you know, music topics. I think we've briefly touched on this, talking about some of the uh, movie directors and other comic book creators that we've talked about. Um, but the reason I want to talk about a hate for it is every every two years or so for the past decade, it feels like this issue has come up again and again and again, specifically with Marvel or DC running out some new comic book project and the internet as a whole collectively raising its hand and pointing out that X writer who created Y character does not see any of the financial gain for Z Marvel movie. Yes. Um, we just recently, this past week, at time of recording, lost comic artist and writer Keith Giffen. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect a lot of people to know the name Keith Giffen, uh, but he was a actually fairly profound comic creator, um, not ever on the Stanley Jack Kirby level of infamy, but you know this is the guy who invented the character of Lobo from DC. Mm-hmm. He wrote Justice League International and made Blue Beetle and Booster Gold popular. He mm-hmm. created Jaime Reyes, Blue Beetle, who just got a movie yeah. for DC. Yeah. He co-created the character of Rocket Raccoon. Yeah. So created a lot of stuff that, like, especially now in this current age of uh, cinematic adaptations, we're getting to a lot of these, let's call B-tier well-known characters. There's one more thing we need to complete the plan. That guy's up. 
No, no, we don't. No, seriously, I need it. It's and and so that kind of stuck in my mind and I was like wait a minute I remember reading a story where the the creator of Rocket Raccoon wasn't receiving royalties and had extreme medical debt was was that this guy and I, I dug into it and kind of found myself re-going down the entire rabbit hole mm-hmm. of specifically issues where comic writers are not receiving royalties for characters when they absolutely need it for stuff like up-to-date medical care. So the the first little tangent I want to go on before we pull out a bunch of examples. Like I said, I, I, I vaguely remembered hearing a story about this. And I would like to tell you and the listeners the story of Bill Mantlo. Okay. Bill Mantlo is another um, fairly well-known, but not like super well-known... A comic book creator who had the bulk of his work come out in the late 70s and 80s. He, along with Keith Giffen, is the other person who created Rocket Raccoon, for one. Uh, Also created the characters Cloak and Dagger, who got a a TV show on Hulu. Created White Tiger with George Perez, who is the first ever Hispanic comics superhero. For better or worse. For better or worse. Um created Rom Space Knight and the Micronauts, a bunch of, like, niche nerd shit. Yeah. But Bill Mantlo was, you know, a a successful comic creator in in his own right um, for a long time and eventually kind of phased out of writing comics, became a public defender for a little while, really seems like a fascinating human being. And Bill Mantlo was hit by a car in 1992. Mm Mm-hmm. He uh, suffered traumatic brain injury from that accident that he, he has permanently altered his life. He is still alive to this day, um, but has, you know, ex- understandable cognitive damage and difficulty from the brain injuries. And at this point and ever since then has had to live in an assisted care facility and, and requires, you know, constant medical attention. Bill Mantlo is the person who I remembered hearing about when Guardians of the Galaxy 2 came out. Yeah. Because it was a huge story that this billion-dollar movie, f- prominently featuring the breakout character of that genre, Rocket Raccoon, and the creator of Rocket Raccoon was not actually receiving any royalties for it. Yeah. Now, Bill Mantlo is a, is a specific case because of his uh, you know, medical issues and because of the tragedy that he went through. A lot of people were quick to speak up and, and drum attention to this fact. And in Bill Mantlo's case, it's actually a little more nuanced. Marvel apparently did pay out a one-time royalty fee to Bill Mantlo's brother, who is his legal guardian, and uh, Mike Mantlo, the brother in question, has never disclosed the amount, but has said it's enough to keep Bill comfortably situated for the rest of his life. Okay, that's fine. But it was a one-time payment. It was a one-time payment, and it also doesn't say anything about all the people who aren't tragic cases. Exactly. But still have made this company billions of dollars with their creative work and because of the nature of the contract work bullshit that comics has 
always operated under, they never will see that. Right. We've talked at length about how you can't get away with just being a comics creator these days. No. It's, it's not something... You, you couldn't do it back then. Yeah. Bill Mantlo's day job was he was a public attorney. Sure. Yeah, to your point. Like he, was, he, he, did, he did public defense in order to make him more saintly. And even then, like, fucking... <sighs> Jack Kirby needed to string together... He, Jack Kirby was writing and drawing... Well, at, at certain points, like half a dozen books every single month. And, and to be clear, writers, even today, with technology, with like the actual benefit of having digital editors that make the job so much easier, a lot of those artists struggle to complete two books a month. Yeah. And Jack Kirby was writing and drawing half a dozen at a time, by hand, with pencils. So we, it, it has always been an endemic problem that if you are not founder of Marvel Comics Stan Lee, you really cannot make I Do Comics your day job and actually have a sustainable living with it. Or unless you were a staff writer who was supplementing it with editing, with also being an editor and also doing... You, writing could not be your only gig. Right. I, I do not count people who just had three different positions within yeah. comics. Like, yeah. Then you're doing three different jobs. Yeah. Anyway, as as Marvel movies have become a... As superhero movies have become a genre unto themselves, and especially a couple of the recent Marvel movies are things that are raking in billions upon billions of dollars for the company president, for... Bob Iger and Disney and all that, and and there is no real adequate trickling down to the Bill Mantlos. Yeah, it, it's it's just completely fucked up, and every, and and people, the internet will like call this out every couple of years to show it. Bill Mantlo is a tragic and specific example, and it's because of the tragedy that Bill Mantlo even gets the amount of like financial compensation that he does. If Bill Mantlo hadn't been hit by a car in 1992, he wouldn't be receiving money for the beloved character, the the primary antagonist or primary protagonist of Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Rocket Raccoon who we all love. It's not even just that. Like fucking Jim Starlin didn't even get a free ticket to see Avengers and he created Thanos. And this is where we're going to start delving into all of the other works cuz in my researching, the the most concerning one I found, something equally as tragic for a name that probably more comics people recognize than Bill Mantlo, I found out and discovered that as of time of recording, Comics writer Peter David mm-hmm. is crowdfunding his medical bills. Yeah. I was completely unaware of this until I came across it, but Peter David has experienced total kidney failure. He's had a couple of strokes. He's had a heart attack. And you can go on his GoFundMe right now to try and, like, help pay for his medical bills. The point being, Peter David, whom has had some controversy come up around him, but Peter David, who despite that controversy, is like a pretty damn recognizable name in comics. Yeah. One of the most prolific writers of the past, like, 30, 40 years, probably. (laughs) 
if you want to know the the most amazing thing Peter David ever did, and Peter David has written definitive runs for X-Men characters, he's written definitive runs for Spider-Man characters. He's he's one of the like most important comics writers of the last 30 years. Peter David did something that I didn't think was possible. Peter David wrote an Aquaman book that I wanted to read. Sure. Peter David made Aquaman good. So not not to defend his more challenging aspects, uh, if you're curious, look up his thoughts on Romani peoples. Yeah. Um, not to defend or really even get into that. The fact of the matter is this man has put in work for over 30 years and has to crowdfund fans to pay for his dialysis. That is fucked up. That is not how it should be when you you mentioned it when I told you about this before we recorded. You could write a Peter David story tomorrow and it would sell hotcakes. Yeah. You could, and Marvel and DC do, adapt Peter David plot lines for various movies and, and other projects. And TV and, and, and all the likes of it. And he does not see... Any of the billions of dollars. Yeah. Now, I would like to counterpoint something that I know is probably... Well, I don't know, but I, I imagine in this straw man way we might see from some of our listeners, why does this happen? It is the work-for-hire model of comic books. The way that it works with most comics is you sign on, and you sign on to do the labor. You sign on to say, you will be paid this amount for this book. And you do not get any rights to it. No. You created this character. That, crea- that character is owned by the company. You will get credited as the creator in all of our, like, when we do our Marvel encyclopedia, we'll mention created by you. But you don't get royalties on that for your work for hire contract. This is the reason why Image was founded, by the way. Sure. Image, fa- Image Comics in the 90s was famously founded by, I think it was six comic creators including motherfucking Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee basically going like we are doing defining work that is making so much money and we are not seeing anything. Rob Liefeld co-created Deadpool and I don't like Rob Liefeld but Deadpool made money. And they were and and, and Todd McFarlane is sitting here like I've got this character named Spawn that I do not want to give to Marvel or DC. Right. Like, I want to own this because I created this when I was a teenager and it's important to me. So they created Image so that they could have creator-owned comics. That's the point of Image. It is a company, and I would argue Image is roughly on par with Marvel and DC. It's certainly a third or a fourth. It's, it's the Maggie Simpson of the three, yeah. but it is it is important. And to this day, Image maintains creator control. There's a reason why Wicked and Divine, which is considered by some to be one of the greatest comic series of the last, what, 30 years? Yeah. Is, is published in a creator-owned format. Like, a lot of these books are, are done that way because Marvel and DC still work on the work-for-hire model. And yes, people sign up for it because they want to work on Batman. And they want to work on X-Men. And they want to work on Avengers. 
to your point real quick, Image Comics came out with The Walking Dead yes. and Invincible. Yes. And you know who is not hurting for fucking royalties is Robert Kirkman, Robert who Kirkman. created both of those comics. Absolutely. There was a Why the Last Man TV show. Um, I know Saga is tied up in a bunch of production hell, but they've been trying to get a Saga show out for a minute. Yeah. Like, but, but it's, it's, and the, the, the difference there is so stark in what it, in what it looks like for these people. And, and for the folks who came up before Image, there was never any of this kind of stuff. And the thing is, the companies don't want there to be. They don't want to have to pay royalties on these billion-dollar properties to actually pay out the creators. They'll put the such-and-such created by this person. They'll put it in their fucking... in in the fucking credits. And even that had to be fought for, Andy. Yeah, it absolutely did. You know what this reminds me of more than anything? Is the Motown disco (laughs) rights fuckery that is exactly like this. This is the modern day equivalent of that. This this absolutely is. This is the larger company taking the creatives and going, all right, well, what are you going to do? Who else is going to give you this kind of distribution? We will pay you something that you can moderately use. In the case of some of those Motown singers, some of them were able to make decently comfortable livings, but nowhere near the equivalent of what they contributed there. Right. And and it's it's always been the model of business taking over on the creatives. We are in the immediate, like, two weeks aftermath of this latest writer's strike that was most contentiously about streaming rights and AI issues, but, you know, was about the matter of royalties. We still have the SAG actors strike going on for the very same royalties and and AI worries. And this is like a level above in terms of priority to the executives and the people with the money and the people in charge than the character creators. Yeah. You know, the this is a minor one and this isn't necessarily as tragic, but the, the last real big example I can think of, um, the character of Hawkeye got a TV show on Disney+. Plus. The character of Hawkeye also had a really good comic book series that a lot of people, like, mention with reverence, the Fraction and AHA run, written by Matt Fraction, art by David AHA. Um, And it was a whole, like, shitstorm on Twitter when the Hawkeye TV show came out because all of the posters, all of the promotion material, everybody was like, that is very clearly, not even subtle in any way, just ripped from the David Aha artwork. And David Aha weighed on weighed in on Twitter being like, yeah, and they didn't fucking ask me for permission or anything. So where are my fucking royalties? Yeah. And those royalties are, you don't get the royalties because you were work for hire. Right. And, and that model has always needed addressing. That model needed addressing in the 30s. Again, there's no reason that Jack Kirby should have been writing on six books in order to just pay his mortgage and feed his family. I don't have an article to link, but the Kirby estate, the Kirby family, is still in protracted legal battles with DC and Marvel for some of the shit he created. Exactly. And and it's just, it's always consistently been the case. And here's the issue. Think about non-comics for a second. 
Think about movies that are based on novels, for example. A novel, and, and, and this isn't a great system either. I'll be upfront about that. But when a novel gets optioned for a movie, and I, and I, I know a little bit about this because I actually remember having a grad school professor who had a, a book optioned for a movie, and the movie ultimately never came out. Mm. But she had a book optioned for a movie, and she talked about this whole process. And what she basically said was, okay, I was negotiated with and then I was given an offer and my agent you know countered the offer and, and we negotiated it and I got paid a certain amount for the option now for my book they weren't interested enough for to move forward with me as like an executive producer or anything like that they did ask me if I'd be willing to submit a draft of a script which I did and that would have gotten me an additional scriptwriter fee or screenwriter fee. However, they ultimately did not go with my script. They rejected my script and then they went on to another screenwriter, which is pretty standard practice. But the point is, she got paid for that when her book got optioned. Now, some people with books that have a little bit more high profile, I'm thinking of the Hunger Games books author, she got points on those and she got an executive producer credit and she was somewhat involved with the production. So her deal was a little bit different. But of course, Hunger Games was one of the biggest book series to come out in years. Yeah. So when that movie got optioned, they knew it was going to be a huge blockbuster. It is a different scenario. Either way, you when you're looking at comic book movies, which again, Guardians 2 grossing over a billion dollars, a lot of these movies grossing ridiculous amounts... And we can talk separately about the financial state of those and that whole model collapsing. But the point is, did Grant Morrison get appropriate royalties for Abrams using their model of Justice League for those Justice League movies? Because that is the lineup from Grant Morrison's Justice League. You didn't have Cyborg in the Justice League before Grant goddamn Morrison. <laughs> right. You had him on the Super Friends and Teen Titans. But yes, yes. I, I agree with your point. But there you go. It's just like, why, why is it that Grant Morrison isn't seeing... Like, it is so obvious. How many times... And, and you, you want to talk about how shitty some of Peter David's opinions have been. Frank Miller. How much of Frank Miller's work... How much of that Daredevil Netflix series is based directly off of Frank Miller's work? How many times are we going to adapt goddamn Dark Knight Returns? Yeah. And Frank Miller, who is a piece of shit, deserves to be paid for that because that was some of the most definitive work and they are drawing directly from that. But Frank Miller didn't even get the option to do this kind of negotiation despite the fact that for the work that Frank Miller did, that's just as much work and just as imperative of work as what Suzanne Collins did for The Hunger Games. We've stumbled across the answer to a question that we've asked before on the show. Um, what is the line between liking an artist's work versus not liking the artist who made the work? Where, where is the line of support? And I think I've figured out my answer at least. And that is, the line is when 
other shitty old white men, the true villain of this entire podcast, <laughs> are stealing money from that abhor- abhorrent individual. Just because the individual is abhorrent, they still created the work. They still are entitled to this money. Yeah. That is the level, that is where the line is in my mind. What you just said, Frank Miller fucking sucks, and he deserves royalties for Daredevil. Yes, because that that storyline for Daredevil, I, I am collecting that in trade paperback because I love it so much. Try and buy it used because I don't want Frank Miller to get money. Although I'm not even sure he gets money from those trade paperbacks. Sure. So, ultimately, like, even if comics media worked the same way that it worked with literary authors getting their books optioned. And here's and let's be clear, again, that model is not great because unless you are a Suzanne Collins or unless you are a JK Rowling or someone else who's doing or a Michael Crichton, God forbid, who was literally having his books optioned before he'd written them. He was having movies optioned on book at book proposals, which is how Jurassic Park worked. Yeah. It, it it even unless you are one of those, you're still not getting a great deal on it. But still, the fact is the company makes this much money off of it. And it would not exist without the work of these writers, and in a lot of cases the work of these artists. You know, I think about Abrams' Watchmen. Yeah. And Abrams is the master of one thing above anything else, and that is putting a comic book panel, like the actual visual right. of yeah. the comic book panel, to cinema in a beautiful and satisfying way. Yeah. Whatever you think of Abrams. I'm pretty sure that Dave Gibbons was, an, was a consulting producer on the Watchmen movie, so he probably got paid for that. But I don't think he got paid for how beautiful some of that original art was and how it directly was recreated by Abrams. Yeah. It's it's a niche subgroup of creators. It's a it's a relatively small amount of people facing this is issue and yet it is routinely coming up and it still sucks every time that like just because it literally is comparable to the streaming royalties problem. Just because in 1978, when Bill Mantlo and Keith Giffen created Rocket Raccoon, nobody could even begin to envision that there would ever be a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, let alone that it would be a financial blockbuster hit. Rocket wasn't even in Guardians of the Galaxy at that point. Right. Just because it was not conceived of at the time and the system was not given any real way to work fairly. That doesn't make it any less shitty that, in practice today, it doesn't work fairly at all. Yeah. So I just wanted to draw attention to that. I'm sure we're going to hear about it several other times as the superhero movie genre continues to hit its groundswell. I actually am starting to hear people talk more and more about how like we're we're reaching the final gasping breaths of the superhero genre just like the cowboy genre beforehand superhero movies aren't going to go away but i hope I mean, you know they, what they existed before 2000 when this whole thing started right hopefully probably not but hopefully 
all of these strikes and all of this public attention given to the nature of exactly where the money is going will lead to some better practices for this small but dearly beloved group of creative individuals who do the crucial thing by creating these characters that we can then fall in love with either through print media or when it gets adapted to a movie. Like it just, the, the, the work for hire comics model fucking blows. It always has. It, it always has. It, 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 it's, it blows outside of this realm too. Yeah. I simply hope that we are able to see some better practices. I agree with that. And you're right. It, it affects a relatively small number of people. There aren't many comic book writers out there who are doing work at this level. And the argument I would return to that is there weren't that many writers in the Brill Building in the 1960s when fucking Neil Sedaka and Carol Kane were writing the most important pop music of all time. There weren't that many of the American expats in Paris when it was Hemingway and Gertrude Stein doing that work. However, that one building in New York in the 1960s made millions of dollars. In 1960s money for a lot of people who weren't doing anything creatively. That small salon in Paris created some of the most important literary works of the 19 of the, of the 20th century. Works that subsequently went on to sell so many copies for publishers and in some cases make really important movies and adaptations. That small little group, and sure, did some of them die penniless? Sure, did some of them die rich? Sure. But the point is, that small group of people, we acknowledge their influence in terms of going, well, they were important. But we, I I would argue, if anyone is going to make money on this, and I don't, I like open source. I like... That, that I think there's a I think there's a separate conversation we we could have about what rights look like in general, especially in a world where DC is literally trying to rewrite copyright law so that they can keep Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman out of the public domain, despite the fact that they absolutely belong there now. Yeah, right. I think that's a separate conversation, but the point is. Based on the work, the labor, and it is labor to do creative work like this. Because of the labor of these people, other people who have no involvement in this other than watching a market or greenlighting something at most are making millions and billions of dollars. And the people who actually did the labor that made that possible are having GoFundMe campaigns in order to pay for their medical bills. Sure. And that system is wrong. That system is wrong. The most I can do is bring it to y'all's attention. So thank you for letting me do that. Absolutely. And that, dear listeners, has been this 107th edition of the (laughs) Love-Hate Relationship Podcast. 
Um, we always appreciate your time. And yes, next episode we will be doing another questions only episode. So if you send in a question now, it's not going to be on that one, but maybe for the next one. I don't know. It's possible it might be on that one. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we don't take another two months between episodes. Yeah, straight uh, up. You can send in your questions no matter when, no matter when you want to send them to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter, which we will probably still monitor until it implodes. Or, the, or we start having to pay for it. Or we start having to pay for it. In yeah. fact... If we start having to pay for it, consider the Twitter to be dead. Yeah, no, that's... that's. I think there was talk of a Blue Sky at some point. Technically, we are on Blue Sky. We just haven't posted anything because change scares me and I don't know how Blue Sky works. Jesus Christ. Anyway. You can... Uh, I'm not going to say any of the follow stuff. It, it's at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D on Twitter or X or Oblivion, whatever, whatever it is. Whatever it amounts to at this point. Indeed. Uh, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Sti- not Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I'm so sorry for this episode because I think you don't care about any of it. But you always listen and you always support, and I love you for that. That's, well, that and, you know, raising me and, and stuff. Thank um, you, Mrs. Ruiz. <laughs> you can... Uh, Follow me on, uh, I'm still just going to say uh, Instagram and chess.com and I'm not even on lie chess that often at this point. A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z where, I don't know, I'm not posting much, but you know, it's it's a fun, nice time. We can, we can share in internet threads that we curate for ourselves so that they don't cause us absolute misery. Indeed. And we would just love to hear from you no matter what. You can find me on Twitter at JovoCop2113. You can follow my miniature painting Twitter at Andy's underscore minis. You can find me on Instagram at Sriracha. You also have another podcast. I also have another podcast, which I also haven't done for like two months at this point. Mm. You can follow my other podcast, Cult Fiction, that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson and that we are still working on putting content out for at Cult Fiction Cast. You can listen to Cult Fiction everywhere you can listen to this show. Alex, we're floundering. Let's close this out. As ever, please tell your enemies.